what drives me, the fire in my belly, is when I look and I realize we do not have a choice. We don't have a choice. The future is coming at us maybe faster than we'd like and in ways that we would not prefer, but we don't get to choose that. We do get to choose how we respond to it. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm J.J. Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. The Chief of Staff of the U.S. Air Force, General Dave Alvin, just announced a sweeping reorientation of the service to focus on great power competition. Vago and I were able to sit down with the Chief and get into some of the details behind that announcement. That story in just a moment. And it's all powered by GE. GE Aerospace is advancing revolutionary engine technologies for this decade and beyond. And the XA100 adaptive engine is tested and ready to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA100. And the Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications is also brought to you by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Bell, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. And now our discussion with the chief, General Alvin. Sir, honor and pleasure uh, to have you on the program and great to interview you and see you uh, again. This is a generational reorganization of the United States Air Force, a journey that began in September when the secretary announced the plan and gave it a very tight timeline that, you know, speed was urgent and that, you know, in his experience, there were a whole bunch of challenges that needed to be addressed to better position the United States Air Force for great power competition. The Four elements of this are to develop the people, generate the readiness, project power, and develop better capabilities in the future. Uh, we're going to get to the what's in a moment, but from your standpoint, we want to start with the why. Why is this reorganization needed and needed now, and what are the biggest problems that you're aiming to solve? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on the program. Uh, I'm actually quite excited about this project. I would see if I can uh, twist it a little bit. We really aren't focusing on the reorganization part. Uh, that's why we're calling it reoptimization. When you're in the world where form follows function and the demand is that you do the function differently, some of the form will change. So there will be some organizational changes, but it's only to service the new way in which we think we need the Air Force needs to provide forces for the joint force. To your question of the why, it, it's a great question. And I think if you think about the time epochs in which the Air Force has existed, we always optimized for the environment that we were in. So the Air Force in the Cold War developed to have nuclear deterrence, constant readiness. We focused on having technological advantage to counteract the overmatch in quantity of the Soviet Union. That was how we were optimized in that time frame. Fall the wall, then it becomes the peace dividend. And then we become optimized for efficiency. And so we do things like combine wings and have one wing, one base, one boss because we have fewer forces. And, and then the 9-11 the happens. And now... Our role is to sort of fill in the cracks for the joint force wherever they're needed because that type of fight did not require large air campaigns as part of major wars. So we had to re-optimize ourselves for that type of conflict. We're still there, but the environment is changing. So we need to re-optimize ourselves out of that environment, still able to do those tasks, but optimize for the high-end fight that could rapidly unfold against a very highly capable adversary. That's what we need to optimize for. And when we looked at our Air Force, we have the best Air Force in the world, the best Air Force in the world. But if we don't optimize it correctly, then we're missing the opportunity to serve the nation and our airmen even better. You said a very important word right there, which is airmen. The first question that airmen ask, the first question a lot of folks in Congress ask, 
How many people are going to move, are going to change organization, change home station as a result of this, or is it not about moving people around? It's a great point, the question of moving. I might be uh, moving into a different organization. It does not always mean that I will be physically moving. There will necessarily be some physical movement. We do not have those answers specifically down to the airmen. But our goal, because we have to have a sense of urgency, we want to enact these changes as rapidly as possible. And so therefore, if one anticipates having large movements of airmen, that triggers things like BRAC and other things that, that have uh, a more time-consuming element to them. So we're looking to do this where airmen may see themselves training differently. They may see their day-to-day life change differently. I think and I hope they're ready for that, but I do not believe that we are going to have a massive change that would move large swaths of airmen from one place to another. And let's follow up on those people, because the first element of what you're trying to do is to build better airmen, mission-ready airmen, as you call them, under a new Airman Development Command. What are the kind of people the Air Force needs in this new epoch, and how is that command going to build them? Well, thank you for that. When we say build mission-ready airmen, our airmen will be ready for whatever mission we put them into. What we need to do is, as an institution, build those foundational competencies that the airmen can train to and develop on that we believe are going to be required in the high-end fight. When we believe that our agile combat employment is going to require airmen to be able to work in small teams, sometimes disconnected, solving complex problems, that's part of our new Air Force doctrine about mission command. If we don't develop them with the skills to be able to operate outside of their technical competency to more of understanding the broader part of the mission, then I think we're failing them. And so that's what we want to do institutionally is develop those airmen to go beyond their technical competency, have a broader understanding of the mission, and then empower them to solve the problems when we may be disconnected from senior leadership. Let me take you to the uh, second element, which is generating readiness. The major commands are foundational, the MAGCOMs, as they're known in uh, Air Force speak, Air Mobility Command, Air Combat Command, the Pacific Air Forces, uh, as well as U.S. Air Forces Europe, are all part of that structure. The question now is how that changes to two different forms of commands, right? Institutional commands and then service component commands and the roles and responsibilities and all the mechanisms that go with it. Air Combat Command is sort of singled out for having an important role and we'll give you an opportunity to talk about that as well in terms of how the the central role it's gonna play and how it improves readiness. From your standpoint, how does the entire organism change at this point? Because there's been a lot of talk about you know, the entire structure being scrapped, which is actually not what's happening. Yes, sometimes I read about what we're doing, and I'm surprised because I didn't certainly have that in the, in our design. But uh, to that point, you know, we, we describe them as major commands. But when you look at some of our major commands, what makes them major commands? Air Education Training Command, we call a major command. AFSOC, we call a major command. We want to do something that makes sense in the long run. So when we talk about two types of commands... One is a service component command, and that's exactly what the name implies. It is the service component to the combatant command, USAFE to UCOM, PACAF to Indo-PACOM. So we want to align all of our commands that have that responsibility directly to their combatant commands. So one of these is we are elevating AF-Cyber under 16th Air Force, which was underneath Air Combat Command, directly to report to CyberCom. So this now, the rest of the joint force, and we can understand that's one type of command. They have the responsibility and accountability to those combatant commanders to present those forces. So interestingly enough, Air Mobility Command is also AFTRANS. Global Strike is also AFTRAT. 
So they're the components to those. So we're designating those as what they actually are, component commands, which leaves you with other commands that are accountable and responsible for the institutional development of our Air Force. The one Air Education and Training Command, now Airman Development Command, is really about the human resources, those developing the airmen. Another is about acquisition and the sustainment of the capabilities. That's Air Force Material Command. Another is the new one that we can talk about, this Integrated Capabilities Command, which looks into the future force design and having the current force be able to meet that in future capabilities. And then the other one is really, it's about readiness. And that is really going to be the focus of Air Combat Command going forward, is looking to synchronize and elevate the readiness of the entire Air Force, not just what would be within, now is understood to be ACC. So those are institutional commands versus service component commands. It aligns and it sort of makes sense across our Air Force. And, and it's uh, a little bit of a blast of the past in terms of what the structure was like as opposed to what the structure was like post-1993. Absolutely. And I think we talked about part of the, why are we doing this? Why is ACC going to change maybe more than the others? When we talk about readiness and we talk about how our Air Force has evolved, we have evolved in our readiness to have more functional readiness, readiness of this squadron to go and support the joint force, readiness to do the individual tasks supporting the counter-VEO fight. But when I think of that is some of the challenge that we need to do is to take our Air Force, which has become somewhat fractionated. We have some functional Air Forces, and we need to be one Air Force. So mission over function. When was the last time we actually assessed routinely our ability for a unit of action to deploy from home station, go over into the Indo-Pacific and execute agile combat deployment at scale. That's mission readiness over functional readiness. That is a key part going forward, and that's how we can best serve our airmen. And one of the ways that you do that in this plan is by emphasizing large-scale exercises. Now, back in the Cold War, we used to do that on a regular basis, but that was with a much larger Air Force that was at a much lower operational tempo. How big an exercise, how significant can the exercise program become with all the other things you're already doing, and at what point does it start to drive your requirement for forces and force sizing? The reason why that's a great question is because that's what we intend to find out. We want to stress the system to understand how much Air Force we really have. It's been difficult to articulate when you are employing your Air Forces on little sort of penny packs and, and you assemble them over in the theater to understand uh, how deeply that cuts into your readiness. But once we have coherent units of action and we exercise those as larger units, we'll be able to see how much we actually have and how short we are. And that will tell us and everyone else where our risks are and where we may need to expand if that's the case. One of the points uh, you were making, I mean, I always thought it was amazing how that it, during the Cold War, the first fighter wing was on 24-hour notice, like a lot of important wings. And in 24 hours, you would have to pull chocks and get the entire wing to Europe uh, in order to support combat operations. You are now looking at a re-engineering of combat wings, uh, restructuring them to units of action that are either designated deployable in place or combat generation wings. How does that contrast with how the Air Force now operates? And what does that also mean for the numbered Air Forces as well in terms of um, the impact on them? Yeah, I like the fact you look back at the Cold War because there's some things we can learn and some things that don't apply anymore. When you mentioned the issue with the, in the Cold War with the first fighter wing, there was really one plan that they were going to fight against. And there were one place where they knew they were going to go. So we have a better idea, but because now we have multiple major contingency, we have to support the pacing challenge, obviously being in, in the Indo-Pacific, but we still need to be able to pick up and go as a unit, as a unit of action. But 
by having the wings now reconstructed with these foundational elements of the command control layer, the mission layer, and the sustainment layer, it allows us to have almost like the Lego blocks all across our Air Force that can deploy as a single unit, but you also may need to have weapon systems from another type. You might be F-15Es and an F-16 unit over here. You can still collapse them into one coherent unit of action. So where in the 90s we tried the composite wing, remember those? Yeah. Problem is they were too expensive and too brittle because they all came in one wing. But if you have modularity in the way you have command and control and sustainment, and you can slip in another mission generation layer from another type of uh, platform, you really have a, still a coherent wing, maybe with two different aircraft types, but the same command and control and sustainment. So it allows us to have the flexibility to deploy different types into theater, but the reps and sets to understand the complexity of uh, deploying a unit of action holistically into the theater. Is this sort of an air expeditionary force, air expeditionary wing concept on steroids? I would hesitate to actually really do much comparison with there because they were so niche mission that they were really trying to go after under the original. And those were actually those that you didn't train as units that were assigned together at home station. And that's sort of the way we did business was we, the only coherent unit would be maybe a flight or a squadron of the aircraft, but everything else that went around it, we sort of crowdsourced across our Air Force, which means that unit of action met in the theater. And that's no way to do it if you're getting ready for high-end combat against a capable adversary. Uh, let me just ask one more follow-up. You mentioned, and the plan highlights, the different link between unit and base and the flexibility that exists. Explain that a little bit, yes. because for a lot of people, they're going to have a little bit of a hard time wrapping their minds around that. No, I appreciate that. And I think when, uh, if not really explained, one could say, well, you have a wing and you're going to add a new base command to every installation. Where are you going to get the manpower from? In actuality, if we really want this deployable wing commander to focus on the deployment, on those things that are going to be required to rapidly go in into a complex environment, we also know that when that wing leaves, there will be the rest of the installation to, to run behind. And so there will be some risk having to be taken with the remaining support, what's now really the mission support group, back at the installation. But you know what? It's not as simple as it used to be. This is Nothing is a sanctuary anymore. So we need to ensure that those who are left behind to run and operate the base, they may be also accountable for continuing the power projection. So severing that, ensuring it's severable so the deploy wing commander, that wing commander can take his or her wing with him totally and understand there's a coherent unit back that is trained and ready to fight the base back at home. So that's the severability. It will largely come out of a disaggregation in some cases between the mission support group and the rest of the wing, but in a manner to where they work together in matrix when they're home. But when the deployable wing is gone, that base command is left with the ability and the training to be able to fight the base. That's going to be key. Now that's a very complicated subject. Let's go with an easy one. Easy. Okay. Cyber. Okay. Easy for some folks. <laughs> but in this plan, cyber becomes a major command within the Air Force. What is the concept of how it will interact with the other major commands? And we notice that you want to bring warrant officers back to do cyber. Once everybody else sees the cyber having warrant officers, how do you stop them all from asking for them? Well, first, I would recalibrate the language. I, that, sure. that there will be a service component command, not necessarily a major command, but cyber is being elevated to a direct report to service component command. 
So by that, we think they're going to be more responsive to Cyber Command and be able to interact just like all the other service component commands do to their command. command. So it'll, it'll be on that status, whether one refers to it as a major or not a major command, it is a service component command. With respect to the warrant officers, we believe that to stay competitive in this environment, we have to attract and retain the right type of talent. There's something unique about technical talent. Now, we are pursuing things within our Air Force, officer tech tracks and enlisted technical tracks for those who don't want to pursue the leadership path but want to stay in the officer corps or in the enlisted corps. We believe there are Americans out there who want to go code for their country, who want to go do this and do it as a part of service and but don't necessarily want to have either of those paths, but they want to see themselves in the future. And they want to see the long-term track. And so this warrant officer track is specifically for that. But the reason why we are limiting it to this particular specialty right now is because when it comes to cyber and IT, that is moving so fast. And it's such a perishable skill if you don't stay in that game, then it doesn't make sense for all the other ones who may want to be warrant officers to fall into that same track. But if you want them to be current and proficient in a perishable skill like cyber and IT, that's why we believe the warrant officer works for this very narrow and specific track. Let me take you to the development of future capabilities. Mm -hmm. uh, you are a strategist. It's a job that you did when you were uh, a two-star. And it brings back uh, several important organizations, one of which is the Integrated Capabilities Office, a Strategic Competition Office, a Program Assessment and Evaluation Office, as well as a greater focus on Lifecycle, which I think is now the Air Dominance Center. Walk us through what all of that means, because there are those who lamented the departure of Air Force Systems Command. There are those who've said, well, there's a lot of baggage by bringing that back. I'm not sure I think there's any baggage associated with that, but that's besides the point. How does all of this work, and do you have the right skilled people to do this in the confines and where does it end up? Is it on the air staff, or is this something that's in the secretariat? Yeah, let me see if I can pick that apart for you rapidly, but deeply enough for it to be understandable. You mentioned a few offices, the Integrated Capability Office, the, the one that is the PA&E office, and the one about special activities. Those are really in the secretariat. That is really a job of oversight. Some of it is to look across two services. We have two services, one department. So that is to make better sense of the programs that we have and make sure they make sense across services for the whole department of the Air Force. So let's set those aside for a bit. Let me talk about the Integrated Capabilities Command for a bit, because this is another case in which our Air Force over the years has become a little bit more fractionated, and we have been building our future Air Force in chunks. So we have the Next Generation Air Dominance, sort of designed and built by Air Combat Command, KC-46 by Air Mobility Command, the B-21 by Air Force Global Strike Command. So we're building our Air Force in pieces, and then we integrate it later. That's very difficult. And the nature of the environment where the pace of change is so rapid and we have to be agile, you can't be fitting things together at the end. We have to integrate them better by design. So we are extracting the expertise out of those commands for, that do that function and putting them together so we can integrate the force that we're developing for tomorrow together and looking at a coherent future force. That's sort of the futures part of this integrated capabilities command. There's another part that they serve that's very valuable, and that is ensuring that as we move from the present to the future, the modernization plans we have are prioritized appropriately so we have the right investments going to where our force today meets our force tomorrow in a coherent whole. Once they have those prioritized requirements for the secretary in my consideration, and that's approved, when that goes over to Air Force Materiel Command, they're happy. They have one singular demand signal about what I need to get from today's force to tomorrow's force. 
The last piece of that is this integrated development office that is in Air Force Material Command. As the operators in the Integrated Capabilities Command are contemplating the future operating concepts against the force design, you need those technical folks to say, it's not feasible, it is feasible, and the mission systems that I believe, the mission systems are going to be the core of our Air Force in the future. The platforms will strap onto them, but the mission systems can handle these ideas. So it allows you to have the technical feasibility of what the operational concepts are. So you have a better connection between the operators thinking about the future and the technical folks that'll help design it. So all these are about integrating our Air Force from what has become somewhat fractionated, if that makes sense. And the Strategic Competition Office, yes, which is a fascinating organization. But th again, that is up in the uh, in the Secretariat, designed to look at the activities and ensure that we are sort of consistent with where the Department of Defense is in doing those sensitive activities that we have. I apologize. I do want to get back to you talk about the system centers. What we have within Air Force Material Command, we have the, these three system centers. One of them is what was the Nuclear Weapons Center, now the Nuclear System Center, elevated to a three-star command to show the importance of the nuclear enterprise. And that nuclear material management, which was spread a little bit uh, across the AFMC, is centralized. And we've also elevated the PEO for ICBMs to a two-star, because that's going to be the most complex recapitalization that you've ever seen going into the future. Some things that get thrown to the wayside, electronic warfare, cyber, and the C3 battle management, sometimes they don't get the attention. We're putting them under one center and, and putting a three-star general in charge of that to show this is central to our future. And then what currently is Lifecycle Management Center has some of those pieces taken away, so we're just really re renaming and rebranding that Air Dominance Center. So we're, again, we're integrating and collecting, aggregating things in a way that makes sense for a holistic Air Force rather than one built-in pieces. When we first met a few years back, as Vago mentioned, you were the director of strategy for the whole Air Force. How many of these ideas were percolating back then, and how much socialization had to happen within the service to get them rolled out? And by the way, did you ever expect to be the guy who was stuck with implementing all of this? <laughs> I can answer the last question first very easily, never in my wildest imagination, but frankly, when I look back and when I see the documents, and we had, the, I remember the interview on television when I was, I had a very bad mustache because Chief Welsh was in Mustache March. I remember that clearly. But uh, you, you looked great <laughs> for what it's worth. <laughs> when we were writing uh, A Call to the Future, the signal sentence in, in that whole document said, you know, the ability to adapt and respond faster than the adversary will be the biggest challenge the Air Force faces. That's true. That remains true. In 2014, 2015, we released the then Air Force Future Operating Concept. And if you look at that document, which still exists today, you can see things like a proliferated LEO architecture, which is now in the Space Force, but that was there. You can see things like JADC2, which was then we called it multi-domain command and control. You can see additive manufacturing. You can see human machine teaming, F-35s with CCAs. Many of those things were there, and to your point, it may have taken longer than we'd like, but we are now getting to the point where those good ideas have all been there, they've all been developed. Now it's just time to flat follow through and implement them. About the implementation, there isn't an airman uh, that doesn't have an idea of whether they're senior or junior about whether they like it or not. There are two criticisms. Criticism one is, boy, this is an election year and it's going to be tough to sell members of Congress on this. And the Air Force has had a lot of bright ideas and ran into the bandsaw. You were actually a two-star at the time when some of these great ideas were running into bandsaws. And the second thing is that this will be a distraction and actually 
make the force less ready to deal with either a Russia or a China on short notice. How do you respond to both of those criticisms? What is it you've learned to make sure that you implement this and implement it correctly with the right kind of buy-in top to bottom? And the second is, how do you do this without actually derailing your ability to execute in the nearer term? Well, this is the challenge of implementation. I would say what drives me, the fire in my belly, is when I look and I realize we do not have a choice. We don't have a choice. The future is coming at us maybe faster than we'd like and in ways that we would not prefer, but we don't get to choose that. We do get to choose how we respond to it. And putting our shoulders into it and driving the change that we know is needed is the only thing, the only choice we really have. Now, to the point about it being a distraction, I would just like to fight evidence with evidence. I'd like to fight facts with facts on that. I, I would defy anyone that could show me right now how many and how ready we are to do that which is really required of us. I believe we need to, we need to better display that and understand how much Air Force we have and how ready we are. I think our ability to do that will help us be ready more than anything that anyone who might call this a distraction. This is not the distraction. This is the main effort. And this main effort, the more that we can display our progress on this, the better maybe we can deter so do, we don't have to fight those fights. But if we don't do that and we can't demonstrate that we have a force that is willing to put the time and effort in, willing to change to meet the environment, willing to rise to meet the challenge, then we'll have failed our country. And I figured out if they wanted me to be in this position, I got four years. As long as I keep doing my job, I wanted to start on day one, and that's where I'm going. The secretary announced this five months ago. There's been a lot of work in between. What does the runway ahead look like? When do you want to have significant milestones finished, and how will you know that the right progress is being made? I would say yesterday, but that's already passed. <laughs> I'd love to have it in place today. I want to move forward with a sense of urgency. Some of these things will be easier than others. Some of these things will be quicker than others. Uh, some of them will involve a long-term culture change. But I think the more that we push into it and the more that we start to build momentum, that's where we will see that we'll be able to go faster later. For me, frankly, the key is that we, we get as many things done early as we can, but even if they aren't perfect, I do not want to have paralysis by analysis. We're in an age where we need to solve for agility. Even though we don't have every single detail right, we need to stop fooling ourselves and thinking that we can confuse precision, which we know how to do, with accuracy, which is tougher. Those are two different things. We need to solve for agility. And if we have the right direction, if we have the right path, it may not be perfect, but we can adjust that path. But the only way you can adjust course is if you're moving on a course. If you're standing still, you're not adjusting anything. So solving for agility, having confidence in the underlying methodology and analytics on the direction we're going, and then moving, because it's easier to adjust on the move. That's my approach. Sir, uh, spoken like a first-rate strategist who also happens to be an experimental test pilot. Sir, thanks very much. Honor and pleasure. Uh, great to have you on. Break a leg on uh, the rollout and the selling of it. And we look forward to continuing this conversation with you. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. And if you liked what you heard, hey, tell a friend, unless you think it would give them a competitive advantage. Thanks also to GE Aerospace for powering the entire flight. We'll be back next week. Thank you.